Well, tonight we're going to be concluding our study in Ephesians, and I want to begin by reading something that the Apostle Peter said about Paul. And here's what I would like to do. <clears throat> let me remind you that two weeks ago, before we read the text, let me remind you that two weeks ago when we were in this study, we were looking at a phrase that appears five times in the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> the phrase is, in the heavenly realms. And I introduced that phrase to you. I showed you where it's five times in the book and all of that kind of thing. And, and <clears throat> I mentioned in that time that Paul has a tendency sometimes to strain our brain. You remember that? That there's, there's some things that's just hard for us to comprehend. Uh, we can read it. We can study it. We can look at it. But sometimes we just have to say, what did he mean? It's like, well, I don't know. But I'm glad we'll find out one day, you know. Now, lots of times we can understand Paul. But every once in a while, he strains our brain. Well, the Apostle Peter would agree with us. Once you open your Bibles before we get into Ephesians, go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter, chapter 3. Peter is writing his letter. Uh, if you know anything about First and Second Peter, he's writing his letter to Christians scattered across Asia Minor. And so he's writing to people who, who lived in areas like Galatia and Ephesus and all those kind of places, people who were familiar with Peter but also familiar with Paul. They were very familiar with Paul. Paul started some of their churches, and Paul traveled through their areas in missionary journeys. They were certainly familiar with Paul and what Paul had written. And I want you to notice what Peter said about Paul's writings. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Stop right there. Don't go any further. First of all, Paul reminds us that, <clears throat> I mean, Peter reminds us that Paul has this wisdom that God, that was God-given. Anybody disagree with that? You, it, it can strain your brain because God has given him wisdom and insight that, that us normally we would not have. So he writes with a God-given wisdom. And then, then I love verse 16. He, talking about Paul, Peter says, he writes the same way in, in all of his letters. That, that is, they're, they're all that way, you know? He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. I love that. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. I, I like the honesty and the transparency of Peter's. I'll tell you something. There's some times I just don't understand Paul. There's some times that he writes in, in such lofty ways it's hard for me to comprehend. And so I have gone back to that scripture time and again, especially, watch this, when I have read the book of Ephesians and the book of Romans. Those two letters that Paul wrote strain my brain in certain places. And apparently Peter would say amen and amen. So tonight we go back to that book written by Paul that sometimes does indeed, uh, or sometimes is indeed hard to understand, the wonderful letter of Ephesians. Now, the reason, by the way, that it's <clears throat> kind of hard to understand is simply because the Apostle Paul is dealing with concepts that are beyond the realm of our normal life. He's dealing with concepts that are, that are beyond just everyday life when we get to the book of Ephesians. I recognize that you have studied Ephesians in 
uh, BSF this month, and we've studied Ephesians twice uh, on Sunday nights so far this month, but there is still more to see and read in this book. And so what we're going to be doing, we're going to walk through the book tonight, chapter by chapter. Maybe I shouldn't say walk. We're going to jog through the book, chapter by chapter, and summarize it all, okay? Because we've looked at it in in, in the macro level uh, and sections and so forth. Now we're just going to go chapter by chapter and, and, and look at it again because there is still so much more for us to see and read. It's kind of like picking up seashells on the beach. I, anybody, anybody, I know probably most of you, have you picked up a lot of seashells in your time? Yeah, well, I, I sure have. I, I have picked up sometimes a lot of seashells, but I've never picked them all up. I've always left some on the beach, always. And then, here's the amazing thing, I go back, back out the next day, There's a new fresh batch out there. That's the way it is with the Word of God. You can dig and dig and dig, read and read and read, study and study and study, but you'll never pick up all the seashells. And then you get up the next day and open it again, and there's a fresh batch of truth for you to find. So, though we're going through Ephesians again tonight, and you've studied it in BSF, we're going to grab our bucket one more time, and stroll down the beach of Ephesians. So let's just start with chapter 1. Going chapter by chapter. What I'm going to try to do is kind of summarize each chapter for you. And uh, as we close out the study tonight. Chapter 1. <clears throat> chapter 1 focuses on the spiritual blessings that we have in and through Christ Jesus. Paul begins with a lengthy passage that praises God for what he's done for us in Christ. I want you to see a key phrase. It's, it's circled in my Bible. Uh, in chapter 1, let's, let's just start verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful, the faithful what? Notice, notice this phrase. The faithful in Christ Jesus. That is a key phrase that you're going to see throughout chapter 1. The faithful in Christ Jesus. And then he, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 3, he begins this, this section of praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, and here it is again, in Christ. In Christ. And you will find that phrase, if you dig... If you dig through the chapter, if you look with with me throughout the chapter, you'll find that phrase, in Christ or in him, used 12 times in this section of of the first chapter. Underlying that these blessings that we have from God are in Christ or that they come from our relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is going to be showing us is that all the spiritual blessings that we have, and he will list many of them, some of them hard for us to comprehend totally. Paul says, but I want you to understand how you, ex- how you uh, 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 experience these. They're, they're all in Christ. They're not in you. They're in Christ. They're not in the church. They're in Christ. They're not in a denomination. They're in Christ. And so, verses 3 through 4, 
uh, I'm sorry, 3 through 14, Paul explains all that God has done for us in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might want to write this down. I know some of you take notes, and you might want to write this down if you haven't picked it up already. Verses 3 through 14, really, in the Greek text, is one long sentence. No, it doesn't appear that way in your Bible, but verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence in the original Greek text. In fact, it's the, it's the longest sentence in our New Testament. It's a complex sentence. It's kind of difficult to analyze. Because in this one long sentence, it, it's, watch this, it's as if Paul starts writing about the blessings that God has given us in Christ, and he keeps adding one phrase to another phrase, and that makes him think of it, another idea, and that gives him another thought, and he just keeps piling these phrases on, one after another, after another, after another, trying to explain what we have in Christ. <clears throat> now remember, when Paul wrote these words, where was he? Do you remember where he was, where he was when he wrote this letter? in prison in Rome I thought about that you know when he starts writing this sentence and he he keeps going and going and going and going and going and, and in our text it's it's verses 3 through 14 I bet the longer he wrote the happier he got I, it's just my it's just my idea that probably that prison cell he had church in that prison cell as he thinks about all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. He spring, I'm just going to break it down. We're not going to study it all. But he speaks first of the, of the blessings that, that we have from the Father. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That, so first of all, he talks about God the Father blessing us. Then he talks about the blessings that come through Jesus. And that's the bulk of the material, verses 4 through 13. Let's kind of scan that. For he chose us in him, there's that phrase, in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, there's that phrase, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he goes on and on and on just uh, just piling one phrase after another, trying to explain the way God has lavishly loved us in Christ Jesus and the blessings that come to us because of our connection to Christ Jesus. And then finally, when you come to the end of that long sentence, verses 13b and verse 14, he talks about the blessings of the Holy Spirit. He's, this is the way he says, verse 13, and you also were included in Christ, there's that phrase again, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with that seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our, bless, our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So let me summarize that and then we're going to move on. In verse 3, he talks about the blessings that are ours in God the Father. Then he talks about verse 3 through 13, or verse 4 through 13, he talks about the blessings that are ours in Christ because of our connection with Christ Jesus. Then at the very end of it, he talks about the blessings that are ours because of the Holy Spirit, that God has done a work in our life that no one else could do. And then Paul concludes this chapter with a prayer for the Christians in Ephesus. 
Can I remind you, Ephesus was not an easy place to be a Christian. You just go back and read in, in the book of Acts 18 and 19. And you'll, you'll remember it or refresh your memory. Uh, Ephesus was not an easy place to be a Christian. And Paul prays that for these believers in Ephesus, this, these believers that's, that's living in a combination Las Vegas and New York City, that's kind of Ephesus. That's a combination of Las Vegas and New York City. Immorality was just everywhere. And Paul prays for these believers that they would <clears throat> know God better and better and that they would grasp the potential of everything that God has to offer them. So that's chapter 1. Now, chapter 2. In chapter 2, we're going to take a little bit of time here. In chapter 2, Paul focuses on two important themes. If you're taking notes, let me give you those two themes. The two themes are these. Number one, how the spiritually dead are made alive, verses 1 through 10. And how Christ is the way to real peace with others, verses 11 through 22. So let's talk about how the spiritually dead are made alive. It's interesting, Paul uses another lengthy sentence here. It's not as long as, as the one in chapter 1, but it's seven verses long. Verses 1 through 7 are one sentence in the Greek text. Now, let's look at this. I want you to notice that the subject of, the, of that Greek sentence is, that long Greek sentence, the subject is God. Look in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, if you mark your Bibles, if you, you might want to highlight or put a box around the word God, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has done some things, all right? So, so what has God done? Well, you need to understand our condition. Go back to verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were what, church? Dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So he says, first of all, before you came to faith in Christ, you just need to remember, first of all, you were dead, dead spiritually. You were not dead physically, but spiritually you were dead to the things of God. How much can a dead man do? No, nothing, right? You're not responsive at all. You're dead to the things of God. And then he says, not only were you dead to the things of God, <clears throat> but he, he also says, you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In other words, you had a different master than God. You were dead to the things of God, and you're following the master, another master, rather, uh, rather than God, you're following the master of this world. And, and then he goes on to say, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And, and as if some of us were to say, well, I don't know if I'm that bad. Paul says in verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, he painting a, he's painting a pretty poor picture here of us, our condition. And then he says in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
You see, the subject of this long Greek sentence is God. And the three main verbs, write these down, the three main verbs are made alive, raised up with, verse 6, made alive with, verse 5, raised up with, verse 6, and seated with, verse 6. Here's what he says. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Could I ask you a question? Could God have left us? Now think through this before you say yes or no. If we were dead spiritually, we were dead spiritually. Could God have just left us in our condition? If we were children of disobedience, could God have just left us in our condition? If we followed the rulers of the, of the, of the darkness, the rulers of the air, could God have just left us in that condition? Spiritually dead in bondage to sin, could God have left us in that situation? And I think the answer is yes. But thank God he didn't. What compelled God to act? If we were spiritually dead, if we were following the rulers of uh, of darkness of this world, if, if we were in bondage to sin, what was it that compelled God to do something on our behalf? Answer me. It's great love. That's what he says in verse 4. But because, now, now this is so good, I want to make sure you get this. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. God did not save us because of what he saw in us. He saved us in spite of what he saw in us. God does not love us because of what he sees in us. He loves us in spite of what he sees in us. (laughs) That's why he says in verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Anybody can put an amen there? Listen, I've got nothing, nothing, nothing to offer God. But he has everything to offer me. God in his great love. You cannot explain salvation apart from the love of God. You simply, it's just impossible. So Paul in this great letter called Ephesians, in the second chapter, he's focusing on how the spiritually dead are made alive. And Paul says, I want to tell you how the spiritually dead are made alive. It's these two words, but God. That's how the spiritually dead are made alive, but God. We had nothing to offer but God. We were dead in our sins, but God. We had no hope, but God. We were children of disobedience, but God. We deserved wrath and hell and damnation, but God. Spiritually dead are made alive, he says in verses 1 through 10. Then in the second half of chapter 2, Paul gets to really kind of the heart of the book. That those who have been spiritually dead and made alive 
not only are they made alive, but they are made one in Christ. How Christ, he, he, in the second part of chapter 2, he talks about how Christ is the way to real peace with others. Made one in Christ. It, it's amazing when you really consider it. Before, the Jew, before Jesus came, listen, listen, listen. Before Jesus came, Gentiles and Jews kept apart from one another. And you know that, but the Jews considered Gentiles beyond God's saving power. The Jews considered the Gentiles dogs. The Jews considered Gentiles worthy of damnation. The Jews considered Gentiles trash. And I can't tell you what the Gentiles said about the Jews. Uh, they, they, were, they, they were so far apart, it was, there was just no way to depict really the difference between Jew and Gentile before Jesus came. <clears throat> you see, the Gentiles resented the Jewish claims of superiority. And the Jews resented the Gentiles for their, uh, for, for, because they didn't observe the law. So Paul says in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, not only has God saved individuals, God has done something else. The first part of chapter 2, he talks about how God has made us alive and how he saved individuals. But, but then he says he's also reconciled Jew and Gentile into one, one body in Christ. We don't have time to dig into it, but let's, it's so beautiful, we'll at least take time to read. Therefore, verse 11, remember that formerly you were... You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done by, in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. He's talking to Gentiles now, describing their life. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, there's that phrase again, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the, uh, the law with its commandments and regulations. And watch this. This is highlighted in my Bible. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the what? Out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both, both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So skip down to verse 19. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but watch this. Speaking to Jew and Gentile, you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. So we come, that was chapter 2. We come now to chapter 3. Chapter 3, a fairly short chapter, but man, what a powerful chapter. <clears throat> the noted psychologist, or psychotherapist rather, Viktor Frankl, uh, said that people can endure any what as long as they have a why. You can endure any what as long as you have a why. And Viktor Frankl spoke with cre credibility because if you know his story, he survived the Holocaust. And it was his theory, his teaching, 
you can survive any what as long as you have a why. What we learn in chapter 3 is that Paul suffered a great deal. He suffered a great deal for his outspoken faith in Jesus. And let's pause for a moment. Put your finger there. And I want you to find the book of 2 Corinthians. Go over to the left. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Before we read chapter 3 of Ephesians, you need to read a section of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 so that you can really have a, a good context for what Paul says. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, 23. <clears throat> Are they Hebrews? <clears throat> Excuse me, so am I. Are they Israelites? Paul says, so am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Then he says in parentheses, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is I'm kind of embarrassed to even say it. But he goes on to say it. He says, I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Now, if that's all he said, that would be enough for all of us, right? We'd, we'd write a book about all of our experiences just based on what he said right there. But go on to see what else he says. <clears throat> Verse 24. Five times, read it carefully, five times I received from who? Was Paul a Jew or Gentile? He was a Jew. He says in one place, he said, I was the, I was the Hebrew of all Hebrews. I was the Jew of all Jews. I was the best Jew you can imagine. And yet he says here, look at it again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That means that his back was whipped five times, five different occasions, his back was whipped and he got the 40 lashes minus one, and because the law said not to whip anyone over 40, so they, they stopped at 39 to make sure they didn't break the law, because they didn't want to break the law as they beat somebody's back. So he says, five times, five times my fellow Jews took the whip to my back, and I got 39 lashes. Would you say the Jews liked Paul? A lot of them didn't. Now, keep reading. Three times, I was beaten with rods. Once, I was stoned. Three times, I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Then he says, verse 26, I, I've been constantly on the, moon, uh, on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own company countrymen that is the Jews but it's not just the Jews look at this in danger from who from Gentiles so yes the Jews to the Jews he was their public enemy number one after he became a Christ follower but he says but also the Gentiles in danger in the city in danger in the country in danger at sea and in danger from false brothers he says I have labored and told and, and gone Often gone without sleep, 
I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. And he says, besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now, let me stop there for a moment. Paul suffered greatly for his faith in Christ. I want you to go back with that word picture in mind. I want you to go back to Ephesians and read what he said in Ephesians chapter 3 as he begins this chapter. In Ephesians chapter 3, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, watch this, for the sake of you Gentiles. What does that mean to you, for the sake of you Gentiles? What, what does that phrase mean to you, for the sake of, I, Paul, a prisoner, for the sake of you Gentiles? What does that mean to you? Say that louder. He suffered for them. How did Paul, when you look at 2 Corinthians 11 and you see all that Paul went through, I mean, just, listen, for most of us, just getting our back whipped one time with 39 lashes would be enough to stop us. Getting our back whipped five times would certainly be enough to stop us. But then that didn't stop him. He, continued, he said, I was beaten, I, all these other things. I was in prison, all those kind of things. Here's my point. How did he endure such suffering? He had a why for the what. Paul knew that God had called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul knew that God had given him the personal responsibility of carrying the good news to the Gentiles. And Paul was ready to do that even if it meant a high price to him. So, with that in mind, let's go back to chapter 3, verse 1. And here's what Paul says. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, That is, for you Gentiles, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it is now being revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel or with Jews, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And although I'm the less although I'm less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Now, stop right there for a moment. Paul said, listen, it's been my honor and it's been my privilege, my responsibility to preach this message of, of, of the gospel to you Gentiles. But would you remember, church, He did that at a price, didn't he? He did that at a price. Can I say something to you? What God calls you to do, he will equip you to do, but it will not always be easy to do. We have a comfortable Christianity in the United States of America. 
And, and we think comfortable Christianity is the norm. When in reality, if you read your Bible, comfortable Christianity was not the norm at all. Paul said, I was so committed to this. This task that God has given me. It's been my honor, my privilege to take the gospel to you Gentiles. But it's come at a price. Got the scars on my body to prove it. But here's why he kept doing it. Verse 10. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, who's the church? Jew and Gentile alike. His intent was now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore, watch this, I ask you therefore do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory. Paul simply acknowledging, yes I have suffered for you. But it's nothing compared to what Jesus, God's Son, suffered for you. That's why he was willing to do it. He wanted them to know the good news. And then he ends chapter 3 with another prayer, what we would call a, a prison prayer. The second prayer found in the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> for this reason, verse 14, I kneel before the Father... Uh, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Do you think that, that Paul actually experienced that kind of power? Absolutely. And you know what he's praying? He said, I'm praying for you people, church in Ephesus, I'm praying you'll experience his power too in the inner being. He, he knew God empowers us for what we face. Now, we go to chapter 4. These next three chapters are going to be pretty quick. Chapter 4. <clears throat> because really the book divides into two halves. You know that by now. In chapter 4, he talks about what the church... I mean, chapters 1 through 3, he talks about what the church is. He describes what the church is, chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 6, he describes how the church should live based on who they are. All right, so... Chapters 1 through 3 are more doctrinal. Chapters 4 through 6 are more practical. And so we're going to go rather quickly through the second half of the book, uh, and mainly because we're out of time, or getting out of time. Chapter, Ephesians chapter 4. This chapter begins and ends with exhortations to love and forgive one another. This is where he's, the rubber meets the road. This is where he's going to get really, really practical. Again, Jew and Gentile still didn't like each other a whole lot. And so Paul begins this chapter and he ends this chapter by, with an exhortation to love and forgive one another. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Just based on what we've read in the first three chapters, that is a powerful verse. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Man, I, I, I'd like to preach that. But let's go to verse 2. Look, look how he begins this chapter 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another. What, church? Yeah. Be completely humble. Be gentle. Be patient. 
bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, go to the end of the chapter. Look in verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. So we don't have the time to really dig into chapter 4, but, but you can see from the brackets, from the, the first part of the chapter to, and the last part of the chapter, that Paul is saying not only has God brought Jew and Gentile into relationship with each other, but he's emphasizing that you're, you are the body of Christ and you need to love one another. You need to forgive one another. And yes, there will be times that you don't understand one another. Yes, there will be times when you're in conflict with each other. But because you are the body of Christ, you need to love and forgive one another. Because of who you are. The, your life should be marked with unity and with maturity and with purity. I'll, I'll summarize chapter 4 this way. When we belong to Jesus, it ought to show in the way we live our lives. That's why he says what he says in verse 30. and 30. Let's just read verse 30 through 32. See if, see if your relationship to Jesus kind of is affected by the way you live your life. Look what he says, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed with the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. When you belong to Jesus, it ought to show in the way you live your life. Now, we go to chapter 5, and I just got to be honest with you. When I was reading uh, recently... Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 in my personal quiet time. When I came to chapter 5 verse 1, I just highlighted it and I stopped. I couldn't get past the first four words of chapter 5 verse 1. At least in the NIV, the first words of chapter 5 verse 1 are these. Be imitators of God. I was done. I couldn't get past that. Be imitators of God. I mean, could you bring it down a little bit? <laughs> could you lower the bar a little for me? Could you make it a little bit easier? Be imitators of God? And, and, and I started looking at that and I thought, listen, that... that that's impossible. I mean, I can't even imitate Paul, the one who wrote the words. Much less imitate God. Be imitators of God. And so I, I literally, I just stopped. And I, I'm, I'm wrestling with this admonition. Be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children. But then I had to put it in its context. Do you see the word therefore? Be imitators of God, therefore. In some other translation, does it start out with the word therefore? What? It does? What translation do you have? Amplified? And so verse five, chapter 5, verse 1 starts with the word therefore. And so when I was, when I was stressing over, I can't be an imitator of God. I, I can't, I'm not that good. 
Then I saw that word therefore. And I recognized therefore points to something that has been said previously. Well, what did he say previously? Well, what he said previously was, was what we just read. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in, God, just as in Christ God forgave you. Therefore, the imitators of God. Live a life of love the way God has loved you. Live a life of forgiveness the way God has forgiven you. Be imitators of God in your willingness to love and forgive others. That's exactly what he's talking about. In fact, he says it in the next verse, verse 2. And live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Then it all came into picture. God wants me to be an imitator of him in the way that I love others and in the way that I forgive others. Because that's the way he has responded to me. And he says, now I want you to imitate what I've done for you. You do that with others. Be imitators of God. So, I uh, spent a lot of time with that, but it just kind of blew me away as I was reading it. And so he focuses there on, in this chapter 5, about <clears throat> living as children of light. Living a, look what he says in verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Look what he says in verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So in chapter 5, he's talking about how we live our lives. He's talking about living with intentionality and living a life that imitates God, a life that loves others and a life that's willing to forgive others. And then in chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, Paul goes to meddling. It would be okay if he said, now you just imitate God, love people, forgive people. Then he brings it home. He says, okay, your religion needs to work in your home too. You need to love your wife and love your husband. Wives, verse 22, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And husband to the head, uh, for the husband is the head of, as read for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the savior now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so in the second half he focuses on the relationship between Husbands and wives. There's a spiritual component in both relationships. That Jesus is to be in our lives, but he's also supposed to be in our marriages. My walk with Jesus should impact my relationship with Lisa. That's a summary of it. That my walk, my relationship with Jesus Christ should have an impact on the way I treat my wife. It should have an impact on the way she treats me. So that's chapter 5. Chapter 5 talks about how you live your life. Live as children of light. Love like God loves. Be imitators of God. And treat one another, uh, even in your marriage relationships, the way 
you ought to live your life. Chapter 6, we're coming to the end. <clears throat> Chapter 6 talks about children and parents that that same kind of relationship uh, ought to be lived out, uh, the, the relationship of loving one another and listening to one another, supporting one another. It ought to be lived out. Uh, Jesus should make a difference in the relationship between parents and children. He even should make a difference. Your relationship with Jesus should make a difference in the relationship even between slaves and masters and masters and slaves. I read that this morning in my personal quiet time. Then we come to the second half of chapter 6 about the armor of God. And the last thing I'll say about this chapter, this well-known passage about the armor of God is this. Paul simply makes the case that we are part of a cosmic struggles and near, mere human resources are not enough. Mere human resources are not enough for what you're going to be facing this week. Mere human resources are not sufficient for what we face as a congregation. Mere human resources are never enough. That's why he says, chapter 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I love that. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He goes on to explain why we need to be strong in the Lord, why we need to be strong in his mighty power, but just don't get past this. Maybe put this on a card for you to meditate on this week. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You don't have the strength you need for what you're facing this week, but be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then he ends by asking this church to pray for him, which I love, love, love. Here's what he says. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, Words may be given me, so I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in, in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Here's a man who is in prison because of the gospel. And he says, will you pray that I will fearlessly make known the gospel as I should? Amen? Amen. God bless. Thanks for being here tonight.